really, really do. We talked about the love of Jesus today in, uh, in class, and I told him, I said, Jesus loves you, and I love you too. Not quite as much as Jesus, but I do love them uh, a decent amount. I'm so thankful for them. I'm so thankful for uh, the parents. Uh, you guys are rock stars as well, bringing them to and from events. Um, and still, give yourself a round of applause. Yes. I, uh, I see them 45 minutes a week, maybe on occasion if there's a youth event for a couple hours a week. Uh, parents, you are with them uh, every evening. You're with them on the weekends. Uh, so what you do is, is so much more important than what I do. And I'm so thankful that we have, we truly do, we have good parents uh, for our students. And I, I am thankful for that. I'm thankful uh, that Pastor would trust me to be up here, that I wouldn't say anything too crazy. Um, at youth events, I've said some crazy stuff from a pulpit. Um, I won't be, uh, I'll be a little more, um, what's the word? Uh, yeah, reserved or, uh, what's the, censored, that's the word. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll censor myself a little bit. Um, no, I'm thankful for Pastor. Um, thankful that he's not only my shepherd, but I am thankful for his friendship. Um, yesterday, he had kept me out till two o'clock in the morning and was like, "Hey, you preach tomorrow." So, I, uh, we were down in Indy um, watching some basketball, and I, I did. I my my youth pastor growing up, he was a big NBA fan, um, and we we sent him some. I sent him some pictures and. He was asking, he's like, oh, you know, late night, you staying, staying all night. And I sent him a picture of uh, a selfie of me and pastor. And I said, no, uh, my shepherd drug me down here and uh, is making me preach tomorrow morning. So, uh, but I am so thankful for them, for their family and for their friendship. Um, and I'm thankful for Josh too. Josh has let me use his iPad today, um, which is super appreciative because I shake when I get nervous and I was going to use paper and I'm deathly terrified that I'm going to drop the papers and they'll go all over the place and it'll be... Uh, I numbered the pages just in case, but Josh came through for us, um, so I am super thankful. Enough of all that stuff. Um, I'm thankful for all of you. That's that's the gist of, of everything I'm trying to say, um, but we'll get into it. Um, I'll get into my text a little bit later, and I, I don't typically just start off with uh, my title, but today I want to talk uh, about the cost of convenience the cost of convenience. And before we get going, um, I want to just pray one more time. I want to pray. I I, I do this before every youth service. Um, We go throughout the whole week. We have, uh, our students have school. You guys have work. You have water heaters going out. I don't know. You guys, you had life. You experienced life all throughout the week. And sometimes it's so difficult. We get into this routine of this is where I go on a Sunday, and then I, I go through the motions, I do my thing, um, and, and things can sometimes just kind of right over the head, at least for me. Um, so I want us to pray. God, I pray that you would give us a spirit of focus today. Lord, I pray that you would uh, anoint our ears, that you would anoint our hearts, that you would anoint our minds. I pray against any distraction, Lord, anything outside of these four walls that would hinder us, Lord, from receiving what you have from us today, Lord. We know that your word is anointed. I pray that uh, the words that come out of my mouth today will be anointed and that the seed would fall on good soil today. We're so thankful for all that you do. We ask these things in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, before I was married, um, and for the first, I think, six, seven months uh, after we were married, Kaylee and I uh, lived in a little town called Albion, Indiana. Raise your hand if you're from Albion. Is there 
people. Okay, wow, decent amount of people, more than I would think. Um, so those of you that are from Albion or maybe you live in Albion uh, to this day, you guys know that it, it's, a, it's a small, it's a quiet little town. Um, shuts down about 8 o'clock on a weeknight. Uh, weekends, you're lucky, maybe 9 o'clock. Uh, and the driving force of that economy is a Dairy Queen and a Dollar General. Those are, those are the two uh, main sources of income for the Albion gross domestic product. Um, and where, where our house was located, where we were living, we found ourselves um, 20 minutes from, 20 to 25 minutes from the Columbia City Walmart. We found ourselves 20 to 25-ish minutes from the Kindleville Walmart. And I was notorious for not putting everything on the grocery list that we need, and I still am. I talk like it was past tense. It happens every single week. Um, but if we forgot something, you were out of luck. Like you, you, didn't, you usually drove 20 minutes, one of the two. So what we would typically do, we would find ourselves on random Tuesdays and Thursdays and Fridays, um, find ourselves at the local Dollar General. And uh, if you've never been to a Dollar General, I'm sure you've seen one. They're popping up everywhere all across the Midwest. Um, but walking into Dollar General, while their prices are rather competitive, you walk into Dollar General, you get a gallon of milk, you get maybe two or three things, um, and we would leave the building with our total being like 20 bucks, um, partially because I can't turn down Oreos. The other part is because it was just expensive, and the reason why it was so expensive is because you were paying for that convenience to just go five minutes down the road and get what you need as opposed to a 20-minute drive. And in 2024 in North America, we are a culture and a society that thrives on convenience. The ease of the customer experience. We order our groceries online. We pick them up without ever going into the store. Our shopping is done online and Jeff Bezos drops it off at your door the next morning. Um, if, you're, uh, if you're Adam and you're a door dasher, you... Uh, can order a Big Mac and fries, and you never even have to leave the comfort of your own home. Um, and, and we just do everything in a convenient state. We love convenience. And we can point fingers. We can say, we can say it's my generation. We can say it's the next generation. We can blame everybody's generation. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, is that convenience has been a driving force and a driving instinct in humanity from the very beginning. There has always been this uh, innate desire to work smarter and not harder. And while, yes, convenience is convenient, a dependency on it can lead us to a point where one will find themselves moving backwards, perhaps missing out on all that life has in store. We're going to start in Genesis 25 today, uh, picking up in verse 29. The verse says, Once when Jacob was cooking some stew... Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. And as any older brother would do, Esau replies very dramatically, I'm about to die. If you don't give me some food, I'm going to starve to death. Give me food this instant. And Jacob replies, swear to me first. So he swears an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate 
and drank, he got up and left. And Esau despised his birthright. And for many, we, we've probably heard this story. It's typically covered in, uh, in our Sunday school classes. We know of the rivalry between Jacob and his brother Esau, that from the very beginning uh, at birth, Jacob was born clutching the heel of his older brother as they entered into the world. And as they grew older, Esau would become what many would uh, consider to be a man's man. He was a skilled hunter. He was an outdoorsman, while his brother Jacob would be described as a mild man. Uh, It's sometimes misinterpreted. He he wasn't a man of weakness. He wasn't an effeminate man. He wasn't uh, anything like that. He was just less of the Bear Grylls type like his brother. And in this passage of Scripture, we find these two brothers behaving rather consistently with their descriptions, with their God-given name and the meaning of those names. Esau returning from the field, Jacob working within the home. Esau returns famished, begging for something to eat. And as the story goes, Jacob barters with Esau and gives him a bowl of stew in exchange for his birthright. So let's dive into this. This uh, older brother, uh, oldest son's birthright. This is something that was sacred. It was something of great value. The Old Testament in Deuteronomy and in First Chronicles, uh, it tells us that the birthright involved both uh, a material and a spiritual dynamic. The son with the birthright received a double portion of the inheritance and would also become the head uh, of the home and the spiritual leader of the family upon the passing of the father. And if that wasn't enough to raise the stakes uh, and the value of this birthright even further, in the case of this family, the birthright determined who would inherit the covenant God made with Abraham, a covenant of land, a covenant of a nation, and a covenant of the lineage of the Messiah. But yet on a whim, Esau goes and sells away his birthright to his younger brother. Esau gives up his birthright in an instant for nothing more than a bowl of beans. Now, why? Why why would he do this? Why would he be so quick to give it all up, especially we consider the, the context here? Esau was a hunter, At this point in history, there was no throwing up a deer stand, going out in the morning. Uh, If you didn't find anything, you came back and you ate a microwave uh, Jimmy Dean sandwich, right? That's not how it worked. These hunts typically would last for days at a time, traveling great distances, tracking wild game. So one could stand to reason that a skilled hunter such as Esau would probably have a little bit of sense of how to maybe forage for some food, uh, maybe kill some smaller game while on the hunt, and at the very least, um, throw a little bit of meat over the fire and have something to eat just in order to sustain him for a moment. But instead of all of these things that we can, we can only assume, but I, I would say they're probably correct, he instead chose the convenience of a quick fix to a temporary problem. His inability to look beyond what his physical body wanted and and very much needed in that moment would cost him his destiny in all that was promised to him. And today we see this same story over and over and over again in churches all across America and all across the world. Individuals with incredible potential, both young and old, individuals who are not afraid to do the difficult tasks. They're not afraid to get their hands dirty. They're not afraid to go out into the wilderness. But in moments of weakness, the needs of the flesh supersede the promises bestowed upon them by the Father. 
Our greatest enemy is no secret. Uh, one of our greatest enemies in this life is our own flesh. And our inability to deny ourselves can often lead to our own undoing. That is why there must be a consistent daily commitment to die to our own flesh. Absolutely, it's way more convenient to do it how I want to do it. It's more convenient to go it my own way. But when all is said and done, there is going to be a cost to that convenience. Matthew 8 and 18 um, we, we stumble upon the story of Jesus here um, following his, his, probably his most popular sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 18, it picks up. Uh, it says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Verse 21, another disciple says to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus responds to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And this exchange between Jesus and these two men, like I said, it happens uh, shortly after Jesus' sermon on the mount. Um, And many people at this point, they, they have watched in awe of all that Jesus has done. They've seen him perform many miracles. Um, And at this point of his ministry, Jesus had begun to uh, acquire quite a large following um, uh, along with his ministry. Many had begun to kind of loosely follow after him. You had the 12, uh, his core group, but it was not uncommon to see hundreds and even thousands of people following after Jesus. And as these people begin to loosely follow after him, he would make his way um, from city to city. People would come just to see him. And this teacher, this, uh, this scholar, a very educated uh, man, approaches him and he says, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Let me know where you're going. I'm going to be there. And Jesus responds in, in this confusing way. He doesn't just answer it straight up. He, he, says, um, he doesn't say outright no. He doesn't say, um, sure, come follow me. Uh, But he tells him that this isn't an easy life. The life of a disciple, it's not going to be the most glamorous. It's not going to be all sunshine and roses. He says foxes and birds have a place to return to each night. They have that comfort. They have that sense of a home. And if you're going to follow after me, if you're going to follow after the Son of Man, you're going to have to be willing to give that up. You're going to have to be willing to give up some of those comforts of life that you have become so accustomed to. With the miracles associated with the ministry of Jesus, following him might have seemed much more glamorous than what it really was. We see the end of the story. We read the Gospels. We know how it ends. But for someone who sees all of these miraculous things, they had no idea what was truly going to become of Jesus' disciples. I'm sure Jesus received many spontaneous offers like this, Uh, at this point in his ministry, but Jesus makes it very apparent that this life is not about the glamour. And as I've grown up, I've had the privilege uh, of being at countless uh, events, if you will. I've been to conferences, I've been to camps, I've been to conventions. Uh, All the things from the time I was was a little kid up until now at, at 26 years old. And at nearly every single one of these events, there is always one of those services where uh, there, there's this, the, the speaker will talk about the call. He'll talk about an individual's calling. And this service goes forth, and, and he challenges those in attendance to a greater level of commitment in following Jesus. 
And for the course of my entire life, I've seen people in moments of conviction and in moments when the presence of God filled the building uh, in which we were in, pour out their hearts in commitment to Jesus. And I've heard it countless times at the end of the service. If you experience the call of God today, raise your hand. And, and I see 70 to 80% of the room raise their hand saying, I did, I did, I received a call from Jesus today. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go be a disciple. And as I prepared for this message today, I look back at all of those moments, and I look back at all of those hands, and I ask myself, why then do we still have so many empty churches across the United States? I looked at camp seasons where I had friends that we were in the altars together. We experienced those God moments together, and they they claimed they felt the the call of God on their lives, and I believe that they did, but are now no longer walking with Christ today. I believe in God's calling. I really do. So, so don't misinterpret uh, what I'm saying. But there is a difference between a moment at the foot of the mountain when you've experienced the miracles, when it's easy to follow Jesus to the end of the earth. There's a difference between that moment than when you've uh, reached the foot of the hill called Calvary. Beyond just the 12, like we said, hundreds and thousands of people followed after Jesus' ministry. But on the day that Jesus would be crucified, that number diminished significantly. And there was but only one man there to help carry that cross. And in verse 21 of chapter 8, where we just read, another follower of Jesus, he asked to follow him. But he says, can I first go bury my father? And this is another uh, encounter that is confusing to me for a very long time. As Jesus, he replies, let the dead bury their own dead. Too bad. Go handle it. It seems harsh, right? It seems very, very harsh. Um, but after, after doing some study and doing some digging into this, um, I learned that this man most likely was not actually referencing an already deceased father. And it makes sense if his dad was dead and it, his father had just passed away, he probably wouldn't have been like, oh, I'm going to go out and go hang out and follow everybody else around. No, he wouldn't have been following Jesus at that point. If his father just died, he would have been home preparing for a funeral. So the man wasn't, wasn't really asking for permission to bury his dead father, but rather he wanted to remain in his father's house and care for him until the father died. And this is obviously a very indefinite youth kids. My voice did just crack for those of you that keep count. There's like three of them. They keep track of how many times my voice cracks, and it happens a lot, even though middle school was 10 years ago, longer than that um, at this point. So that was free. Enjoy. Um, but he's not asking for permission to just hold a funeral. He's asking, hey, can I just stay home for a little while longer while I finish out this stage of my life and, and get everything in order the way that I want to have it, and then I'll go follow after you, if that's okay. And Jesus, that, that's not what he wants. He tells him, let the, bed, the dead bury their own dead. This man was another of the disciples, another one following after Jesus. But he didn't do it the same way that the 12 did. He didn't do it the same way as those true disciples did. And this shows us that the term disciple, it has a deeper meaning. And it goes beyond an individual who just casually follows after Jesus. The man wanted to follow Jesus, but not just yet. He knew it was good and he knew that he should do it. But he felt that there was a good reason why I can't do it right now. And this can be a very hard concept to grasp, especially in North America when, when family relationships, they're, they're so important, uh, and they are. I'm, I'm thankful for my family. My mom actually randomly showed up today. Um, I'm thankful for my family, thankful for my mother. Um, 
But even our family, even those closest to you can sometimes be the ones that are going to hinder us from reaching that full potential that Jesus is calling us to. Right? Just because they are close with you, just because they are your friend, just because they, they say they love you, that does not mean they have your best interest in mind. Jesus pressed after the man to follow him now and clearly stated the principle that family obligations or any other obligation must not be put ahead of following Jesus. Jesus must come first. And in the same way that there is a cost to a life of convenience, there is a cost to truly being a disciple of Jesus. That cost is the denial of the things that we in our humanity find so important. And I'm not telling people to go out and quit your job. Um, I I believe followers of Christ should have jobs. I believe that the workforce uh, needs uh, strong Christians within them. I'm not telling you to walk out the front door and leave your family behind uh, to fend for themselves. But what I am telling you today is that we must become so sensitive to the distinct difference between the things that we want for our lives and the life that Jesus has called us to. Esau's inability to deny his own human needs, to deny his flesh, cost him his higher calling. And if we do not make a consistent effort to differentiate those two needs from what God is calling us to, we will consistently choose what we feel is best in our own minds. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells us, In verse 24, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Convenience is the enemy of consecration. A spirit of apathy and of self-reliance prohibits what God is desiring to do in a church And in a community. Our life on this earth, it's not about convenience, it is about commission. And so often we find ourselves in a place of convenience rather than a place that will challenge our faith. And in John 21, uh, following, that was two, following the resurrection of Jesus, many of uh, the disciples are found fishing. Peter is among them, uh, a former fisherman. He had left everything to follow after Jesus. He had cast his nets to the side to follow after him. But yet after the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, we go back and we find what? That Peter has returned to a place of convenience. He's returned to a comfortable place, a place that he knows, a place that uh, he he knows that I I know how to do this. This is easy. This is fine. I've understood this my whole life. And in Jesus, we see this encounter between the two of them. Um, He's trying to fish, and per usual, um, which I don't know how Simon Peter was a fisherman for so long, because every time we read about him fishing, he's terrible at it. Um, He's not catching anything uh, at this point, also in John. Um, And they they see this man on the shore, and he tells them, uh, he said, cast it over on the other side. They catch a bunch of fish. We all know how it goes every time Jesus goes fishing. Um, it's always very, very successful. But Peter recognizes the man, and he, he jumps out of the boat. Um, he, he actually tells us that he, he puts his clothes back on, um, and then he runs out to the shore uh, to meet Jesus. And they sit there, and they eat breakfast together. And this breakfast um, is one of the more interesting encounters uh, in, in Jesus' ministry between him and Peter, because this, this breakfast could have gone a number of different ways. Jesus could have condemned Peter. He had, in fact, done the exact opposite 
of what Jesus told his disciples they should do back in Matthew chapter 16. Peter explicitly denied Jesus multiple times in order to save his own life. But Jesus doesn't condemn. Rather, he asked Peter a simple question. He says, do you love me? And three times they go back and forth, Jesus asking this question, and and Peter emphatically is like, yes, yes, I love you. Stop asking that question. Verse 17, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus replied, feed my sheep. Verse 18, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. A life of commission is far from convenient. It might end uh, way different than how you ever imagined it. I'm sure Peter's life ended in a completely different way uh, that he ever imagined that he would leave this earth. But I can promise you the payout on a life of mission for the king greatly outweighs the cost of a life that centers around my own convenience and apathy. And it wasn't until after this encounter that the disciples, uh, they committed to wait until the promise of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure some of them would have continued life as they knew it. They would have gone back to fishing. They would have gone uh, back to the tax booth every single day until the day that they died. But they decided, I'm going to be committed to a higher purpose. And when they gathered together and they were all in one accord together, that's when the Holy Spirit would be poured out and the church would be born. You guys can go ahead and stand today. I'm not going to go too much longer. But if there's going to be revival in our community, in our schools and in our workplaces, there has to be a commitment by the whole body. One person absolutely can make a difference. I I believe that 100%. But when revival breaks out, it is when an entire community of believers has decided my life is not my own. My own goals, my own aspirations, my own way of life does not matter if it does not revolve around the commission of Jesus Christ. What you value is going to shape your culture. And if we are to go and make disciples of all people, of all nations... I have to allow the Holy Spirit to change my heart and change what it is that I value. The commission must outweigh my own comforts. I heard a preacher one time ask a question, and it's, there's no theology behind it whatsoever, so don't um, come after me and say that I'm speaking a heresy. Uh, but he, he asked this question. He said, I wonder what it would be like if when we all get to heaven, we're all waiting in line, to get inside the pearly gates. Uh, I'm sure some of us will, will see these celebrities of the faith, and we all know how we act when uh, we see a celebrity. Josh told us a story. He met uh, Shaq whenever he was younger. We're kind of awestruck, right? And we kind of lose all sense of, uh, not dignity, but we'll just kind of ask anything. And I, I, he, he asked the question, he said, I wonder what it'll be like when we see people like, like Simon Peter, when we see people like David, when we see people like the Apostle Paul, these celebrities of the Bible. And we go up to them, we say, hey man, like Corinthians, dude, awesome, loved it, right? That was great, huge fan of your work. We go up and we, we introduce ourselves and we ask them these questions. And after we, we've kind of done our, our word vomit there, 
What if they ask the question, that's so nice to meet you, what would you do? Who are you? What, what did you do for the kingdom of God? And as we stand and we face these martyrs of the faith, how are we going to respond? Well, I say, I, I, I went to church most weeks. I, uh, I showed up for a couple work days. I, I showed up on Wednesday nights for Bible study. I, I did all of these things. I even played an instrument. But then they asked, that's great. But what did you do for the kingdom? This thing is more than just a Sunday morning obligation. It's more than an occasional midweek obligation. It is a daily commitment. The way that I walk, the way that I talk, the way that I treat people, it is a lifestyle of discipleship. And it's not easy. I'm not going to sit up here and I'm not going to say, hey, I got this all figured out. This is super, super easy. It's hard. I'm not a perfect person. It's sometimes hard to set aside time for devotion. It's sometimes hard to set aside time for prayer. But I'm sure it was also hard for the three Hebrew boys to not bow down to that idol. I'm sure it was hard for Daniel to decide, I'm not going to pray to anyone else but my God. I'm sure it was hard for the Israelite people to march over and over and over again around the walls of Jericho. I'm sure it wasn't convenient to build an ark while everyone else made fun, while everyone else pointed and scoffed. I'm sure it wasn't convenient to leave the nets behind and follow Jesus. And through comfort and complacency, the enemy wants to rob you of your destiny. And your flesh will rob you of all that you are capable of doing for the kingdom if you let it. You know the key difference between Jacob and Esau? Sure, Jacob was a knucklehead. But there's a key difference in the two, and that is Jacob was relentless. From the very beginning, he said, I'm holding on to the heel. I want that blessing. From the very beginning, he's Esau, give me, give me your blessing. Give me your blessing. And there's a moment where Jacob finds himself wrestling with an angel, wrestling with God for hours. I don't know if you've ever wrestled, but it's hard. It's very, very difficult. After like a minute, done, gassed, full body workout. It is the absolute opposite of comfortable. But Jacob refused to let go until he received his blessing. He was willing to walk with a limp. He was willing for the rest of his life to change the way that his life went forward in order to receive what God had for him. That's the difference between Jacob and Esau. That's the difference. One sold it all for a bowl of beans. The other one said, I'm not going to let go until my life is changed. And as we make our way to the front today, I'm challenging some Jacobs. I'm challenging someone like Simon Peter that says, if it costs me everything, my reputation, my life as I know it, my own comfort, my life, all of it. I just want my birthright. I just want the commission. I just want to live on mission.